Vesper Lind, Dominita Domino Vitali, Kissy Suzuki, Dr. Madeline Swan, Olga Kurlenko, Dr. Christmas Jones. What do all these names have in common? They're all Bond girls. Nice. They're all Bond girls. You, you don't know James Bond, Ian Fleming's spy novel about MI6 British agent James Bond. Again, these names might be less familiar, but of course James Bond's name is familiar. I think the major reason my mom probably wasn't a big fan of me watching the James Bond movies when I was young was probably because of the Bond girls. Uh, now that I look back on it, she probably shouldn't have let me watch it because of James Bond and how he treated women. Um, but if you don't know anything about the Bond girls, they're suggestive, they're international, they're disposable, and hardly any of them would make another movie. One movie and they were done. But of course, James Bond always remains in his 30s and he's in every movie. Well, today we are going to see another spy story. We're going to see Israelite agents and a risque female character. But something is going to be different about this spy novel. In the end of it, it's the international female character that we are to remember. She is the one that continues on and is heard about even today. How about us? Have you ever felt like an insignificant character in a story? Maybe you feel like, I'm not significant enough to have my name in a story. My background disqualifies me from being in some narrative. I'm not with the in crowd. Why would my name be in the story? Well, the grand story of redemption says that's not true. And we'll see in the chapters that lead up to the Christmas climax, it shows that even your name is significant. Let's do this, shall we? Let's look in God's word, Joshua chapter 2. It's a narrative. And the way that we do narrative is a little bit different. Let's let the story unfold. Let's see how the climax builds. So we will read it in parts, not knowing what might unfold later on as we read. So let's start, Joshua 2, verses 1 through 3. And Joshua, the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shatim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. The word of the Lord. 
where you're just joining us, welcome um, in the season of Advent. Usually here at Emmaus Road in the fall, we go through an Old Testament book. And then in the spring, we go through a New Testament book. We went through Hosea here um, in the fall, in the winter, and then here in um, the, later in the winter, in the spring, starting in January, we're going to go through the book of Acts. But in this in-between period, in the season of Advent, we are going through the book of Matthew, kind of indirectly, through this story in Joshua. We're looking at Matthew's genealogy. And in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, four women are mentioned. This is Joseph's line that comes from Joseph, the father of Jesus. It comes through him that um, that's how Matthew's line works, while Luke's line goes through Mary. Again, what they're trying to do is show the credibility and the legitimacy of Jesus of being the king, right? He comes from Abraham, his Jewish lineage, all the way to Jesus, and also from David to Jesus, the lineage of the great king David. But what's very interesting in building credibility in a genealogy is that you have men. But there's something very interesting about the genealogy in Matthew. It includes women. An odd choice if you're trying to bring credibility in those days. But that kind of communicates the message of who this Savior is and who he comes to save. On top of this, the four women that are choosed in Matthew's genealogy, and David mentioned this last week, are a very interesting allotment of women to choose. You would think maybe Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel, you know, some of those patriarch wives, right? But instead, the women that are chosen in this genealogy are pretty interesting. Risque, you might say. You might say suggestive. Not ones that you might try to bring out into a story or to build Jesus' credibility. Last week, we saw Tamar, and we saw her as a prostitute, as prostitute herself to sleep with her father-in-law. Today, we see another prostitute. Next week, we see a very forward foreign widow. And the week after that, we're going to see a woman who is taken in adultery and her husband murdered. Really? This is who you want to put in to the genealogy? These are the four women that you choose? Yes. I really like Sam Guthrie. He's a writer for Gospel Coalition. He had some good thoughts on this genealogy and also this passage. And he says this, Christ came from those he came for. Christ came from those he came for. See, part of Christ's greatness is he doesn't simply come from the best, right? He comes from us, from the broken, from the fully human, right? We have to remember Christ is both fully God and fully man. He had crazy uncles, he had a great-grandma that people tried not to talk about. He had a cousin that was really weird. He was put into a family. If you read a, a lot of diaries in American history, one theme that happens in American history is this. It's a theme that still carries on part of 
us being Americans, is that we like to get away from our families. <laughs> it's written all over American history. The whole idea of manifest destiny, of getting away from your family, just move west. I don't want to be around them anymore. If I just get away from them, then I'll be okay. Then I'll form my own family. <laughs> then we quickly realize when we form our own families, the craziness is still there. We can't get away from it. We'll talk about families. This is the book of Joshua. You see, this book of Joshua talks about this family, the Israelite family, that's gotten away from their fathers and mothers. In fact, all of them are wiped away, and when they were taken away, then they could enter the land. You have to remember, the fathers and mothers of these people in the book of Joshua were ones that were disobedient, right? The golden calf that they worshipped. And they had to wander in the wilderness for many years until they were all gone, until the children could then faithfully enter the land. Not even Moses could enter the land. And here, they are going to do it right. Not like my fathers, not like our mothers. We are going to do it right. There's something significant of being an Israelite. You're the chosen people of God. You should not take that for granted. There's something special to be part of God's people. These are, again, who God has chosen who he saved. This is significant to be part of Israel. This is what makes this story in Joshua so early in the book so shocking. Right? You should concentrate on Israel, but instead it concentrates on someone that is outside of Israel. So this is what I gotta do before I even get into the story a little bit. We have to realize this story has lost a lot of its effect upon many of you that have grown up in the church. Right? The flannel board, the scarlet cord, the mighty walls of Jericho, all of those things, you know the ending, you know what happens, and it's kind of lost its shock value because you're so used to the story of Rahab. I don't think it's a coincidence that it might be people that are outside of the church that might see the profoundness of this story, the profoundness of an outsider. Right away, this story shocks you. From the very few verses, it should make any reader, especially an Israelite reader, go, Whoa. First of all, here is the faithful Israelites, right? Two spies. And where do they go? They go lodge themselves at a prostitute's house. Right? If you're hearing this story, you're like, what is going on here? And some of the language is a little risque, too, about going into a prostitute's house. And so everyone must be going, okay, what's happening. And then on top of that, the dilemma gets greater. They're in a foreign land that they're trying to take, an enemy, Jericho, 
and they're with a foreign people, and now they've been found out that they're there in Jericho, that there's word the spies are there. And they're within a prostitute's house who might not have the best credibility. You're wondering, what is going to happen? Are they going to be given up? Is this prostitute just going to give them up to the king of Jericho? So these are some things that should shock you a little bit, but then something else should shock you even more. It's kind of the things that the writers do to point something out, to make a point to us. Whose name is actually mentioned? Are the spies given names? Nope. Is the king of Jericho given a name? Nope. Who is given a name? The prostitute, Rahab. Why is she mentioned? How should she be mentioned? Not an Israelite name, not a king's name, a prostitute's name. Maybe it's growing up in an individualistic culture. Maybe it's a human thing. Maybe it's because I'm around so many adolescent girls, right? But I get this theme a lot, maybe in my household. There are, it seems to all of us, there are periods in our life like we feel we're an outsider. Whether at school, within our friend group, within society at large, within our own church. We have these feelings, do I belong here? See, God in this story is putting a spotlight on an outsider. In saying, she is more part of the family than those who think they are on the inside. Maybe some of you, you're at church today, and you feel like, I don't belong here. I don't know the songs. My past doesn't qualify me to be here. I don't have kids like so many people have here. I'm not married. I don't know what to do during the fellowship break. God gives names to outsiders. He gives a name to a prostitute from Jericho. Rahab has a name, and she's significant. But what is this character going to do? Her king is asking her to give up the spies and tell where they are. What is Rahab going to do? Let's find out, shall we? Verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I did not know where the men went. 
Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she laid in order, in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, Please swear to me by the Lord, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign, that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. It's very unfortunate that many times when this passage is talked about, it gets bogged down in the ethical debate of whether Rahab lied or not. So much ink has been spilled on the topic. Some people say, well, she's a new believer. She didn't know any better. This was in the midst of war, so there's a different ethic in how you talk about things. She didn't tell anything really false. These are where many times people spend time on the passage. Do you know the problem is with all of this speculation? It fails to see the greater outrage or greater surprise in this, in this passage. The greater surprise in this passage is that Rahab turned her back on her own people to follow the Lord. Well, maybe you want to pin me down on what I think if Rahab lied or not. If you really had to pin me down on the question, I'd say this. I do not think that Rahab lied. Instead, she used her newfound allegiance to God to conceal the whereabouts of the spies. And this is what I find very interesting of how this passage is laid out. She tells the king or his messengers... She does not know where they are from or where they went. Something that we think that she should be most sure of. And then when she talks to the spies, she then talks about what she does know. So she talks to the king about what she does not know, which sounds like she should know. And then she talks about what she does know, which is surprising that she knows this so well. What does she say that she knows? Verse 8, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And she goes on further about what she knows of this God. 
for, your, for the Lord, Yahweh, she gives the name, the very name of the Israelite God, Yahweh, the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She didn't live the stories of the Red Sea parted. She didn't see physically the Amorites defeated. She did not see these things clearly. But she still says that Yahweh is the one and true God. And she repeats what God has promised to the people of Israel. He promised that one day as they entered the land, the hearts would melt of the people that were in the land of Canaan that the Israelites were taking. She repeats the very promise that God has given. From the mouth of a prostitute, a foreigner, God's faithfulness is seen. God shows that he fulfills his promises. And what a faith. To deny her own king, who she could see physically. To follow a king that she would be the forerunner of, that would not come for another thousand years. What faith. What trust. She had more assurance even than the Israelites with all that was surrounded around her. And from that place, she trusted in the Lord. I think it was a Wednesday, my boss on Capitol Hill, he gave me the responsibility to go to this meeting, to be in his place, in his stead, at this important meeting. It was a meeting of a lot of the major political commentators and communicators on Capitol Hill. Lots of big names, right? And at this meeting, talked about policy, how to spin things to win political battles, how to tell people on our side the horrors of the other side and what would happen if they won, right? These were the kingmakers. I did not say anything at the meeting. <laughs> I just stood and just sat and listened as they talked. I knew one woman there that gave a presentation. I knew that she was a Christian. And again, I hadn't talked to anyone that was there. But as the meeting ended and people were live, uh, leaving, I, something possessed me to, um, to go up to this woman. And I kind of, kind of grabbed her by the shoulder. And I, I don't know, I didn't, you know, I kind of get nervous around some of these people. And I, I, all I really said is that, I, hey, I'm a Christian. That's what I said to her. It's one of those things that sticks with you, still sticks with me. I remember she looked at me, and she only said just a few things. She said, there is something so much greater than this. I am here in this world to show them him. Even all around her, the power 
the things that look more real. She knew there was a God in heaven, above, and the earth below. You know, it's hard not to be like the people of Jericho in our time. Our hearts melting. Many commentators say the words in Hebrew, hearts melting, would be like having an anxious presence now. That would be the same kind of word. Being anxious. We see people die, especially after these few years. We see our nation totter. We see anger and fighting. We wonder what our future holds. Do our hearts melt? Oh, the world is ending. Let's cower under our walls. Or amidst the noise, do we see what Rahab saw? One above it all. There is one in all the darkness that shows the light. One that even in his death, there was resurrection. Rahab said, I know the Lord. I want to encourage some of you today. You might feel very, very far away from God. Because what you've experienced recently, maybe your past, maybe you feel like, I don't belong here. Will you let him take hold of you in that place? In that darkness? Would you be able to see that there is a light that breaks through? Even when it might not seem clear, there is a king to come. Rahab saw it. Even though it would be a thousand years later that she would be the forerunner of Christ. See, the fear of God either hardens sinners further in their unbelief or graciously calls them to believe. Everyone in the city was afraid, but Rahab's fear caused her to cast herself on the Lord. But what's going to happen? How is this going to play out? These declarations. Let's find out. Verse 15. Then she let down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours, that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. 
But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your word, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills. They remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and, all, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Other than the genealogy in Matthew, Rahab is mentioned two more times in the New Testament in very significant places. One in the Hall of Faith, in the book of Hebrews, among all those great people of faith, and also in the book of James, the only person that James used to illustrate a faith that is actually active. He uses Rahab as an illustration. In both places, in Hebrews and in James, it refers to Rahab as the prostitute. Very intriguing. Here is a person of great faith held up throughout the Bible, church history. Rahab's faith was not stationary. She saved the spies even at risk of her own life because she trusted in God. We see the theme of Joshua, if you read the book of Joshua, the theme that comes up over and over again is be strong and courageous, strong and courageous. That's throughout the first chapter. And then the first example of someone that is strong and courageous is not the Israelites. That comes later, the crossing of the Jordan. You see the blowing the trumpets. You see all this. But no, the faithfulness and strong and courageousness comes from a prostitute in Jericho. And what is even greater, that her faith did not just save herself, but also saved her family by the scarlet cord. What an unlikely person. That if you cast yourself with her, you would be saved. I think Rahab is a shadow of another unlikely person. Born in a manger, from Nazareth, a carpenter's son, who had fishermen as disciples. That if we identified with him, we will also be saved. Too often people share this story of Rahab and say, be like a Rahab. No. Rahab points to a greater one, Jesus Christ. Let's identify with Christ. Let us come under his shelter. Let us come under his faithfulness. Even in our unfaithfulness, we can be saved if we identify 
with his scarletness, his blood. No matter your pedigree or background, the Lord saves those who trust in him, abide in him. Let's see how the story ends, shall we? Go to Joshua chapter 6. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she had lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. And at that cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. And from this woman, married into Israel, to be the mother of Boaz, Boaz to be the one that married Ruth to go on to the lineage year upon year to Christ. Stories. Stories of characters that are unlikely. Of course, we quote this one a lot. We do this as Christians, right? But there were unlikely characters in Middle Earth that probably didn't have names in many of the stories of Middle Earth. They were hobbits. Who knows a hobbit's name in Middle Earth? And there in the Lord of the Rings, Sam and Frodo are together, and Sam is trying to encourage Frodo amidst all of the hard things that are going on around them. And this is what Sam says. I know it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't know what want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something even if you were too small to understand why. 
But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folks in those stories had lots of chances of turning back. Only they didn't. Because they were holding on to something. That there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo. And it's worth fighting for. Hobbits. Harlots. Unlikely people like us. Advent. From darkness, there is hope. From a broken genealogy comes Christ. We can be a part of that family. We can be a part of that story. We can have a name that will be known forever.